0: Welcome to Dragon Talk. Hey! Woohoo! This is the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Very excited to be here. I'm Greg Tito with my uh, co-host and friend, Shelley Mazanoble. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm good. How are you?
0: Very very excited to talk philosophizing with you and our amazing guest, Dr. Terence McMullen. He is the chair of English and philosophy at Eastern Washington University in Spokane. Very interesting dude, and I can't wait to pick his brain. Uh, That's going to be an interesting one. Although I
1: will admit, sometimes when I think too much about philosophy, it has the same effect on me as time travel. I just get to a certain point, and I'm like, I can't! I just can't. I can't wrap my brain around it. Uh, which I guess is kind of the point. It's just meant to be thoughtful.
0: It's meant to be thoughtful. It's meant to be part of our wondering about our world. And mm-hmm. it is interesting because, you know, he's an avid D&D player. And he believes D&D can have so much to do with uh, with us thinking about our existence. So it's super cool, fun stuff. And we're going to throw it all at you in our interview segment. So very excited about that. Yeah. Um, here in Dungeons & Dragons World, we also are very excited about... All the things we were working on for 2022, which you'll learn about soon. I was going to do some whole bunch of announcements for you, but I decided, you know what? No, I'm not going no. to. No, we're not. No, I'm we're going to tease it just out. Just wait. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to tell
1: you there's good stuff. Like, really good on stuff.
0: On the horizon. You're going to need a Horizon Walker Ranger in order to find out what's happening on that horizon.
2: hmm hmm hmm
0: But what is interesting, I got some really late-breaking news for you to talk with game designer on the D&D team, Dan Dillon, and meet oh. your monsters with a fun segment on a monster I actually don't know very much about, Helmed Horrors.
1: Uh, yeah. Anything that's got horrors in the name? Nah.
0: There's some horrors in this house. There's some horrors in this house. <laughs>
1: We're going to find
0: out about it very soon uh, as we get into that segment now before our interview. All right. Let's welcome Dan Dillon to Meet Your Monsters. Hi, Dan. Yay, Hello. Dan. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Hi.
1: I, Hi.
0: We are excited to talk to you on this segment, Meet Your Monsters, which is all about uh learning about a specific monster in the Monster Manual or other, you know, D&D materials out there and just really delving into deep around their story and 5th edition and how you can use them in your game. And so, Dan is gracious enough to be here and talk about one of his favorite monsters, which, admittedly, Shelly and I know very
2: little about. So, Helmed Horrors. <laughs> Helmed Horrors. Those are the ones, yeah. Um, they're, they're a really cool monster that I think gets slept on a little bit. Uh, they have showed up in a couple of published adventures. Like, there's one lurking in uh, some of the earlier pages of Descent into Avernus. And I think there are some spooking around in uh, Out of the Abyss. But, uh, but they're fun. And uh, I don't hear enough players terrified of them. So we, we need to fix that. Oh, <laughs>
1: so you want to change that. You're like yes. the, the lobbyist for the Helmed Horrors. And you yeah, I'm um, the, uh,
2: the, the, the evil construct sales rep. <laughs>
1: for so okay, well, what is it about this particular monster that really appeals to you, Dan Dillon?
2: Sure. Well, just kind of like a, a brief overview. A Helmed Horror is this animated suit of plate armor with a shield and a sword, and it's empty, and this like you know, light glows from inside the the, the suit that no one is wearing. So it's super creepy right off the bat. Um, it's kind of like a leveled-up version of the very basic animated armor uh, construct, dude, like the you know, challenge rating one or one-half, whatever it is, that little fellow. These uh, take it to the next level. They're um, kind of deceptive because they look like they're maybe just kind of another robot or automaton, but they're smart. They're intelligent. They're... Um, Able to follow their, creatives, uh, their creators' orders to intent rather than specific letter. So they're not just following a, a program, right? You can't trick them that, that, that way. Uh, and then they have just lots of nasty little defensive surprises um, because they can be very difficult to damage and very difficult to affect with some of your favorite signature spells. So uh, they can be a great way to sort of throw a curveball at, uh, at players who've gotten maybe a, a particular tactic that they lean on real hard. Uh, if they have a spell or a, a trick they like to use, these can, can shake it up and force them to think on their feet.
0: I like that, because that's like constructs in general, right? That they, yeah. they, they uh, are not affected by uh, uh, non-magical means, right?
2: Yeah, so you know, once you get up to like the uh, the golem level, the kind of the, the the big capstone constructies, yeah, like you can't even hurt them unless you have magic weapons. These guys aren't quite that tough, um, so they're resistant to regular weapon damage. Uh, but if you have a magic weapon or adamantine weapons, you can hurt them. But you know, they're only challenge rating four, so you're going to be fighting them probably pretty you know lowish in your campaign. You know, upper tier one, maybe start of tier two. Uh, so there may not be a whole lot of magic weapons running around. So they're gonna they're gonna shrug off a, a fair amount of punishment. Um, they have deceptively low hit points. Their hit points are only sixty. And if you even compare that to something like an ogre, which is challenge rating two and has fifty nine hit points, they might seem really fragile. But that resistance goes a long way, and their armor class twenty. Because remember, they're a walking suit of plate armor, and right. they carry a shield. So they're gonna shrug off just a lot of attacks, and. Uh, A lot of the attacks that even land at that level are only going to do half damage. So they've got some surprising staying power.
1: So you mentioned that they're intelligent. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that players would have the ability to reason with them or kind of convince them to not attack?
2: So that's interesting. Uh, yes and no. Um, they do understand uh, all of the languages that their creator understood, but they can't speak. So it's not like you can have a back and forth with them. Um, but their intelligence ten. Uh, so they're they're as smart as you know your average person. Um, so you could try to parlay with them. The problem is they are unswervingly loyal to their creators and whatever their creator told them to do. And remember that they understand the intent of what they were told to do, not a specific letter of the law program. So it might be uh you you can't talk your way past them necessarily if the boss told them don't let anyone in here, they're not gonna let any intruders in, right?
0: Yeah. But is it the way that you can use uh some of that specific language to your uh advantage, like a wish spell, right? Where you'd be like, if the if the if the command was protect me, and then you're like, well well actually by letting us buy, you're actually, you know, letting us protect your maker.
2: Right. So yeah, let's say if you were there with benign intentions, maybe you could convince it that you're not a threat and that you are there for their maker's benefit. And in, in that case, they would maybe let you through. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah.
1: So so who who and how are they creating who's creating them and how are right. they created?
2: So it, it, they don't have like a very specific um, creation story. They're just, you know, they're, uh, they're a magically created construct. So probably your wizards, artificers, those sorts, of, those sorts of folk will be making them, you know, clerics of the forge, imbuing things into, into sets of armor. Um, and it, it talks about them being more difficult to create than some of the standard constructs because of their level of understanding, their intelligence that they're imbued with. But then it gets into they're, they're resistant to magic just across the board, so they have advantage on saving throws versus spells, and then they are even hard coded with three spells chosen by their creator that they're just flat out immune to uh, and oh. the, the book gives you three pretty solid suggestions for if you don't if you don't have a plan off the top of your head fireball uh hold uh, so heat metal and uh lightning bolt. they just can't be affected by those at all they just shrug them off i think so I, those, are
1: w- those would have been the three I would have. Actually tried.
2: Yeah, walking suit of armor? You know the <laughs> druids are going to want to try to eat metal, that thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this this is a really fun customization point where you can kind of tailor them to whoever in your world is creating these things and why. Um, you know, think about what sorts of threats that wizard in their tower might be guarding against and what magic would they be worried about. These, these creatures would just be immune to three of those things. And one of the cool things about this is uh, that's any three spells. It doesn't have a level cap. Like, you could say oh, wow. this this fellow's immune to wish.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Because then it opens up all these levels of, like, what, what, what it was the creator and things. So I like these monsters because, now that you're discussing it, like, they have a... a, a, a inherent story behind them because mm-hmm. there's like who created them and why you know it's like a magic mouth or something that you might encounter uh in the world it's like it's not just the spell itself that's 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 cool it's the usage of them right and so yes. w- what are some ways that dms can use them in creative ways that can can really highlight that
2: so one of the easiest ways to really kind of have these guys tell a story just from what three spells you pick to make them immune to is think about if you have the villain who has been studying the party or who has been thwarted by them multiple times and has started to learn some of their tricks and has picked up, okay, they like to cast banishment. So I'm going to create a kill squad of Helmed Horrors that are all immune to banishment and they're going to go after the go after the heroes now. Right. And so maybe one of their go-to tricks suddenly doesn't work at the worst possible moment. Um, I'll, I'll share a story with how they were used against me one time in an actual game. And uh, actually, this cemented my love for the monster. Uh, we we uh, ended up fighting two or three of them in uh, kind of an upper room of an evil wizard's tower. And there was a symbol of stunning in the room. So if we went into the room, we were getting whammied by the symbol of stunning. You know, every turn, you got to make your saves or you get stunned. And it's not, a, it's not an easy save uh, when you're dealing with high-level spells like that. These guys are just flat-out immune to the stun condition. That's just one of the many conditions that they're immune to. So these guys were just standing in the room with the symbol, drew some of us in, triggered the symbol, and then we realized we were in trouble. Because we couldn't really get away from them, because not only uh, are they this defensive you know, kind of powerhouse, they also fly. And there is no visual indication that they're going to fly. They just have a magical flying speed so they can Superman around. And so <laughs> you're not going to be able to hide up on a balcony and plink them with arrows or anything like that because they're coming for you. So we were trapped in this room having to make saves every turn or be stunned, which is just terrible when these things are in your face. And, uh, and they're just immune to it. So they can stand in there all day long, happy as a clam, beating on us with their swords. Uh, It was a terrifying moment, especially for my poor Warlock, where all of my damage was Force, which they're immune to, Necrotic, which they're immune to, and Fireball. So...
0: Which was on your spell list and you couldn't use.
2: Which, uh, yeah, I was a fiend warlock. That was one of my big new shiny spells that I had for having recently hit fifth level. And uh, yeah, no, this was a rude awakening. (laughs) So I had to get very creative. I think my best bet at that point was Shillelagh, just magic up a stick and beat him with it. (laughs) And help. And hope
0: the rest of the party can 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 shoulder the burden.
2: It was it was rough, but yeah.
1: (laughs) So I when hearing you. Talk about how a DM can use them, and you're saying like, "Oh, like you just, you know what their bags of tricks are. They like to cast this spell or that spell, so you make your helm horror immune. Isn't that like a little bit cheating?"
2: Well, not if the uh, not if the villain has a, a, re- a reliable means of knowing what your uh, what your heroes are doing. Say if they've had uh, run-ins with them before, their their plots have been foiled, and they've noticed that this particular spell is uh, kind of a workhorse for their rivals. Why okay. wouldn't they build to try and uh, kind of counter that? Now, as a DM, you want to be careful. Like you don't want to build every encounter to turn off all your players' cool tricks. That's just not fun. But every now and then, making them sort of change up their tactics, push yeah. them out of their comfort zone a little bit, especially at, you know, you know, Superman can beat everybody and you know bullets bounce off of him, but when someone brings out the surprise kryptonite, things get interesting, right?
1: Mm. You're helping to make them better, stronger. Yeah. Absolutely. And then
2: they'll learn. Yeah, they'll like the Borg. Then they'll adapt and that trick won't get them again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And
0: I think you're, you're, well, you you're. bring up a good point because there can be certain tactics that a party can fall back on because they're like, oh, it works. It works every time. We don't have yep. to worry about it. It just, you know, fights might take longer because there's more hit points involved or blah, 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 blah. And you're yeah. like, well, here's a great way just to kind of get the party off those ruts and try something new and different. Yes. Yeah,
2: yes. absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, um, rut was exactly what I was the word that I was thinking when you were saying that, Greg. I think it's if you notice, maybe as a dungeon master, your party feels like they're in a rut. Yeah. Maybe you create one of these just to mix things up.
2: Yeah. And because, you know, you just have to keep things interesting uh, in a D&D campaign. Because if you're doing the same thing every fight, even if it works, that that's, that starts to get less fun even on the player side, at least for me, right? I want to, I, I do want to be challenged. So uh, so, I found these particularly delightful and terrifying in the moment uh, but uh, but overall they were great and uh, it was i w- 'm thrilled that my dm crushed us with these, so <laughs> now I can use them
0: <laughs> yeah, and so you mentioned the terrifyingness like how can you use this in a more of a uh, you know as in the name of the monster, a more horror setting like can you you mentioned that like the eyes glowing and things like that, but what are some other tactile things that you think <laughs> helm horrors and dms could use to kind of bring out that you know uh, suspense.
2: Sure. Uh, well, that I uh, personally I would lean pretty heavy on other sensory descriptions. Like uh, maybe this particular helmed horror, when it goes active, and this you know cold light starts spilling from inside the armor, it also smells of something strange. Like it crackles with ozone, and you can feel it sort of stinging your nostrils, or it smells like um, boiling, bubbling tar or pitch. Right, so this this sort of smell follows it around, and that can even become a cue. If uh, say you're doing something where you're using maybe lower level characters who who aren't necessarily you're not expecting them to be able to go toe to toe with this thing and defeat it. Maybe they have to kind of do like a Resident Evil style thing where they have to evade it long enough and you know pile things in its way to slow it down, and it becomes kind of a pressure thing. Then you can use those sensory cues to kind of up the tension because they think they're safe, but then they start to smell brimstone or ozone or tar, or hear this this strange discordant musical chime that happens whenever the helm horror is near. You know, oh, and that's and,
1: that's good.
2: You know, they they fail so to cool. pick the lock, and then they hear the sound or or they catch the smell, and so then they're urging the rogue, "Let's go, let's go, let's go. It's coming." Uh, so there's yeah, you, you can just um, think about the ways in which they could be this presence even if they're not in the room and you set that up when they fight them and then you can use that later to sort of uh, preface the monster's return. That's awesome. I
0: love also too that like imagery of the different colored lights. I mean, you know, you can have it be anything you want. Yeah, and
2: tailor it to whoever has created this Helm Torer. Like, you know, it's fine to take the picture of the monster manual as sort of the generic default and drop it into your dungeon. But if you think about who made this and why, you can really uh, add a lot of just sort of uh, texture customization to it and make it feel more like a lived-in real world.
0: Love that. So cool. All right, well, I feel like I have a real good understanding and now I've met these helmed horrors.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's... I don't like... I I don't think I like constructs in general. Um, But this guy, I remember like when I was really little, I saw I'm sure it was The Invisible Man, a really old Mm. version of that movie where but he was in a suit, you just couldn't see like the face and the limb, like the hands. And to me, that was so horrifying was just like seeing this this like suit just moving around. Yeah, clothing just moving around the room like that. And it's really stayed with me, which is why I think creatures like the helmed horror would just be automatically terrifying to me i don't even need that little music box chime thing of yours there you go
2: just you know play with the visual a little (laughs) bit maybe it doesn't glow maybe it just has nothing inside this armor and maybe the armor isn't fully enclosed so you can just see through it at the joints and maybe it doesn't have gauntlets so some unseen force is holding the weapons and you can just see right up its fan braces and yeah yeah.
0: creepy options yeah so good all right. Well, I think final tip here is just to make sure when you're saying it out loud, you uh, pronounce Benunciate. every syllable. Round <laughs> yeah. horror, yes. horror, <laughs> uh, because that's a very different monster. We haven't we haven't designed that or published uh, the other monster quite yet. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, very no great to uh, learn more about this monster uh, from from someone who has a really strong connection to it. So thank you.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, they're some of my favorites. I hope everybody out there has fun with them.
0: Yeah, right. And they will this, now. I think they're going to run Yeah, right. They're going to go yeah. run out and put Helmed Horrors into every adventure going forward.
2: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you will meet your quota, sir. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dan, if people want to ask you more questions about this monster or how to use it in their game, like what's a, what's a good way for them to do that?
2: Sure. Best way to catch me is probably on Twitter. I'm at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one.
0: All right. There's one of, we mentioned this before, you know, you, you got to find the person who's zero, zero,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. There's, there's a lot of them out there. I keep I keep watching. I watch for it. One of these days, that handle's going to be free, and it will be mine. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Not yet. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dan. And uh, yeah, this is
2: going to be fun for people. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Dan. <laughs>
0: Wow. Well, that is a a terrible, terrible monster that wears helms.
1: Horror.
0: Horror. You have to Um, accentuate the second syllable.
1: Always interesting as well to see which types of monsters really resonate with people. I feel like there's probably some philosophy... Psychological, some kind of hook there that we could dig into.
0: You know, we should ask uh, Doctor Terrence McMullen all about that. Let's get him to find out about what is what is philosophy. What is philosophy? Everyone, let's welcome Doctor Terrence McMullen to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! So excited. Woo-hoo!
3: Thank you so much for having me. I cannot believe I'm here. I cannot believe this is happening. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for having me. No uh, problem. It is You're real. a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have the bills and the seven years in graduate school to prove <laughs> it. Uh, I, I <laughs> my, my 20s, the entire decade of my 20s on the altar of higher education. And and, and here I am, uh, still paying still paying the graduate loans, but I'm happy to be where I am. Got that right piece here. of paper. Yep. And now you're I'm free
0: to quote yes. Indigo Girls, of course.
3: That's right. That's
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great philosophers of our time. Absolutely. <laughs> the Indigo Girls. Well, we have you here because not only are you a doctor of uh, philosophy uh, teaching at Eastern Washington University. In fact, I think you're the chair of, 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 a, of a thing,
3: right? Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the second week as chair of the new Department of English and Philosophy. Um, oh. So we just had some mergers. Um, so my very kind new colleagues uh, elected me chair. And I immediately started looking around and saying, how can I turn this place into Dungeons and Dragons University? So <laughs> we'll how long? We'll see how long I stay as chair. Uh, <laughs> currently the chair right now.
1: I feel like if any department would be open to D D University, it's the English and Philosophy Department.
3: True, absolutely, right. absolutely. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer.
1: Absolutely. Well, congratulations on your new appointment. Yeah. Very exciting. Thank you. Thank um, you. But I guess it, we're not also used to having guests that are wearing ties.
3: It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of throwing me. <laughs> I'm colorblind, so do you want to describe? It's, it's. I know it's floral. I it's, know. Yeah, it's very nice daughter sylvia has to pick out all my ties for me because i'm colorblind and and so i it's like i don't know if you remember from kids giranimals or granimals oh yeah it's kind of like geranimals for phd students that's what i'm wearing like i remember this tie can go with these two shirts
1: yes oh. i actually ha- just had a conversation about geranimals and how sometimes why don't they make them for adults
3: G- the colorblind people colorblind adults need geranimals i'm telling giraffe giraffe there you go. There you Greg,
1: go. do you remember animals?
3: I don't. I don't at
0: all.
1: It was this amazing um, kid's clothing that like all the, of the, the tops and the bottoms had a different animal association. So you could pick out an outfit by looking for like a giraffe top and a giraffe bottom and you just knew they went together. Mm. It was that simple. A hippo top, a hippo bottom. An owl bear top, owl bear bottom.
3: It's good. And so I, rem- I know from I know from memory this shirt has some red in it, and the tie has some red in it. So it
1: looks very good. Your daughter did wonderful. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, taught my first class of the quarter of my Star Wars and Philosophy class. Oh my God! Star Wars paisley tie, which I was very proud of, which was one of my Christmas presents. So uh, yeah, I uh, a tie to remember that I'm here for the students. I'm on their dime. You know, when I'm when I'm at home, it's just T-shirts, but I'm here for them. So I I wear the tie as kind of ritual way to remind myself that I'm here for them.
1: Uh, That's really nice. And I also can't believe that there's a Star Wars philosophy class.
3: Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. So one before before I tried to turn us into the Dungeons and Dragons department, we in the philosophy program, uh, we have a really strong emphasis on pop culture and philosophy, which is why doing Dungeons and Dragons is, is an easy transition and is kind of a no brainer for us. Uh, my good, uh, my good colleague Kevin Decker uh, has been. Uh, I think he's up to something obnoxious, like twenty-five books that he's edited on pop culture and philosophy. So Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Dune. Uh, um, you know any any kind of pop culture fandom you can imagine. He's he's edited these books to show that philosophy connects to the everyday. Philosophy is always in what you're doing every day. It always gives us uh, examples of problems and quandaries to look at. And so once you see it, it, it's it's everywhere. And so pop culture is a really good way to introduce people uh, into the subject of philosophy.
0: I love that because it really is at the heart of storytelling in general, right? Like, I mean, the way we think about our world—you know—in some ways, philosophy now means, you know, that way of thinking about being and unbeing and what that all means. But it used to just mean knowledge and 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 general, you know, kind of uh, uh, thing. And that's you know, that's the most wizard-like out of anything uh, out there. Uh, so I love that you are taking that and and uh, you know, making stories. Resonate beyond just you know the bangs and the explosions and the and the and the great reprisals that happen in storytelling and making it be like oh, all right now what does this mean about about your life I mean that's 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 at the core of what we do as storytellers.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think I think we all enjoy different kinds of games and sometimes you just want to clear a dungeon or something like that. But I, I think that the the really fun role playing happens when you actually have to debate. These sorts of questions, when you actually have these issues presented to you, um, I love I love uh, kind of mentioning you know people that I just think do an amazing job of this. Uh, um, uh, I believe a friend of yours, Paige Lightman, um, who who wrote uh, one of my favorite uh, adventure league modules, Ddal Eight Ten Troll Skull Murders. Pardon me, Troll Square Murders. Uh, mm. She has uh, I don't want to give it away if somebody hasn't played it, but there is a, a being that is often associated with evil uh, who's, who's kind of the bad guy of the module and the players are, are looking for what they take to be a villain and then when they find them, it's, it's a lot more complicated. And uh, when I ran that adventure for uh, my local comic book shop, um, I, I, uh, they're, they're kind of going through their layer at the end there and I basically had a series of magic mouths and the magic mouth was asking the players as they're sneaking through like you're here to kill me but I haven't hurt you am I the monster or are you the monster oh, yes. and and I literally had one of the players be like I'm never going to have another philosopher dungeon master ever <laughs> Horrible! Uh, but then he actually really liked it. Uh, and so I think D&D, it's just a natural to, to, to use it if the party wants that, right? If the party is there for that, to actually use uh, Dungeons and Dragons as a way to have these philosophical debates. That you're right, Greg. That's where philosophy started. It was an everyday thing. Um, it's, it's only in the last recent, for philosophy's history, the last three, 400 years, that it's become thought of as an academic endeavor, Right, It used to be something that we all did every day and, and especially a lot of these oldest philosophies like Confucianism, like Stoicism, like Epicureanism were meant to be done by everyday people because we all face these choices. We all suffer. We all have a limited range of things we can do with the time we have, but so many options. Uh, and so philosophy used to be something woven into people's daily lives. And I try very much to deflate the idea of philosophy as something you have to do in college, and it's all about using big words. Um, th- mm-hmm. There's that element to it, and that's great. But I think it, it needs to start with something that's much closer to how we actually live our lives.
0: Even, I think, in your, in your, in your uh, uh, statement there there's the thread of a gandalf quote i i think you might have said right of like you know it's all it's all about what we do with the choi- the, the time that we're given uh and you're like yeah that's that's something that has resonated with so many people it's in memes it's in gifts that people show everywhere and they're not even realizing that like look that's a a really heavy idea that we sh- that we're grappling with and thinking about especially you know during these times
3: that's right that's right that's right that's right absolutely absolutely
0: so you have a wonderful uh, uh, beginning story of playing Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, you know, of course, we'll talk more about philosophy and how it interacts with with your life. But I'd love to get the listeners out there knowing when. What was the first time you played Dungeons and Dragons?
3: Sure. So it was my tenth birthday, which would put it in 1982, and my wonderful brother Pete uh, got me the famous red box, the the basic D and D set. Um, and so I was a little kid living in Santurce, Puerto Rico, uh, just outside San Juan. And I got it. and I was like, what's this? It's amazing. And my dad, Ed, I just handed him the book. And I'm, I like to say I'm fake smart. That's actually why I wear the tie. To- <laughs> my dad was smart, smart. He was uh, an engineer, a chemist, a brilliant human being. He flips through it and he goes, yeah, I got this. I'll be your dungeon master. And so me and my buddy Timmy and my buddy Javier, we're all thinking we're going to get a dungeon, we're going to stab some orcs, we're going to get treasure, and we're going to level up. It'll be great. My dad sends us on this adventure that only years later did I realize was him off the cuff giving us a truncated version of Andre Dumas' Man in the Iron Mask Mm. where we find out that there's a fake marriage about to happen where an imposter prince who's taken over a kingdom is going to marry a princess. And if he does, he'll control just so much resources that he will bring death and destruction to the known world. And only the three of us know, and we have to try and stop it. So the whole adventure is all role-playing. It's all ethical decision-making. And on the fifth day of the vacation, we are also, for another image, we're also playing this... Uh, so Puerto Rico is really close to the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas and St. Croix uh, and St. John. And so we're in, in St. Croix uh, on the beach playing at night. Uh, and, uh, and, and the last day, we haven't gotten any gold. We haven't bought anything. And I'm like, Dad, you're doing it wrong. The last day, we finally get to this tower where we know the wedding is happening. We have the real prince with us. All we have to do is run up the stairs and say, stop, Right. And we walk into this chamber and it's filled with this looted gold. All the gold that this evil prince has stolen. And the three of us are like, oh my gosh, it's final. It's, and, and and I don't know if you remember all DD, like the amount of gold you had correlated to how much you leveled. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we're gonna be so powerful if we could just grab all this gold. And my, my best friend, Timmy, at the time, he was ethical. He was like, we need to do what we need to do. And I'll cop to this. I was like, let's grab the gold now. And, uh, and Javier was like, let's take some gold and then go save uh, the, the day. So we shove all this gold into our pockets. And my dad says, as you're running up the stairs, you start to feel sick. Oh, no. And then you start to bleed. And then you pass out. He TPK'd us. On the stairwell because the gold was poisoned. Oh, if you. That was my. Now, I, of course, didn't know as a 10-year-old about using D&D to teach philosophy to children. But looking back on it years, years, decades later, it really was a wonderful example of philosophy. Pardon me, of of Dungeons and Dragons, of role playing, uh, being what John Dewey calls deliberation as a dramatic rehearsal. Dewey has this great idea that humans have imagination, right, to imagine what would happen if, right? And so I haven't in real life had the opportunity to stop a fake wedding or, you know, grab a bunch of loot. But I absolutely have had the choice between the easy self-serving thing and doing the thing I know I should do, right? Um, And so moments like that help you reflect on these things before you're in that actual moment.
0: Timmy is now, oh of course, uh, works for charity and, uh, <laughs> you know, is only doing good and, and altruistic things in the world. Tim- uh,
1: or not, because, you know,
3: Tim- c- could have turned him the other way. Timmy, a living saint. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a pediatric oncologist in Georgia.
1: Hello, everyone.
3: Oh, everyone. Um,
1: I have a philosophical debate right here.
3: So he's a <laughs> heal doctor, not, not a fake doctor like me. He's an actual doctor. That's amazing. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
0: oh. what a great introduction to Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, you know, uh, did, it, did it feel
3: fun at the time? Uh, this is, I, it was more the overwhelming feeling of immersion. And this is one of the things that I, I remember, it was uh, two summers ago, before the horrible times, before the pandemic, I was mm-hmm. DMing for uh, a, a group of young people. And I just—I remember seeing it in their eyes, that moment where they were imagining what was happening in their mind's eye. And, and when we stepped away from the table, I saw this 10-year-old kid. He was, he was just moving, and he was, and he was imagining himself as a rogue and what he was like. And so this – I wouldn't say it was fun because I really – I distinctly remember being frustrated with my dad. But I also remember being immediately and deeply hooked – and it being this this totally unique way of imagining the world that I had never experienced before, um, and and so I played D for years in Puerto Rico. We would we would play in the wooden dugout connected to our school's baseball field was 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 the was the best place, and it was next to an ancient mango tree, uh, literally like a like a hundred year old mango tree, and we would take breaks by throwing rocks and like gorging ourselves on mangoes and then getting everything sticky and, and playing, uh, playing in the dugout for hours and hours and hours. Um, I fell away from it uh, for years and it was only uh, six years ago that I'm in a bookstore and my son Liam, uh, eight-year-old son Liam, walks up to me with the player's handbook oh. and he literally goes, what's this? And it was like, whoa, I was like back to me being him as a kid and be like, oh, my gosh, we're going to get this. And he, <laughs> was, he was a dragon born sorcerer before we got to the car. I remember oh. that. And, and, and we've been doing it ever since. And so I love doing it as recreation, um, but I also love working it into my job as a philosophy teacher, too.
1: This is amazing that when you are talking about your son discovering it, because this is a moment I, I talk about a lot at work, not being a kid myself who discovered D&D. I'm very regretful of that. I wish I had. But I know like somewhere right now in the world, there's an eight-year-old kid discovering D&D. And it's like that moment they see the cover of you know the player's handbook like your son did or the monster manual or... They maybe are at a game store and they overhear people playing it. There is something that is very, very enticing about this game and they know nothing else about it, literally judging books by their covers or just seeing a cluster of people around the table. And it's fascinating to me that in this world of everything digital, everything on demand, everything bingeable, they are still gravitating towards this very analog experience.
3: And I love that. And, and for, for good reason. I mean, the technology is good. And obviously, we're having this wonderful conversation right now because of technology. Um, but but, but the, the, the human basic reality is, is, is not going to change. And at least in this regard, we need stories, right? And we need shared stories. Um, and I think D and D is a wonderful architecture. In that's that's a highly adaptable architecture in which we can basically tell stories together, which is which is a really deep human need. Um, and it's especially one that can that is that is even more necessary now because the technology, which has its place and is very very valuable, of course, can also, if left unchecked, alienate us from each other and isolate us from each other. Um, which is why I think it's really wonderful that the, you know, I got into virtual D&D because of the pandemic. Uh, and, and of course, you know, it's just like Zoom, like, are you there? Can you hear me? You know, all, all that silliness. But that aside, it's been a wonderful opportunity for people to break out of this isolation in in a safe way and still tell these stories. Of course, I think almost everybody likes the face to face better, but um but the fact that we can now play it online is is been a, it's been a life raft to so many people. Yeah. And I've heard so many people talk about it like that as, as an emotional and social, you know, this 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 wonderful link back to humanity that we have.
0: I've told this a bunch of times and I I want to kind of get your take on it uh so that I can feel like I'm 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 not just <laughs> uh you know spouting uh, crazy theories but i think that dungeons and dragons uh taps into something that is something innate in, in all of of humanity right like we have been for all of our history written and unwritten gathering around and telling stories together uh as human beings right it used to be a fire and you know now it's more of a table uh uh and I, in some ways, it's what makes us human. It's what defines kind of humans as different from from animals or plants or anything else on on, on this world. Um, wh- what do you think that is? What is that that nature of, 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 of storytelling that allows people to uh, get the type of, you know, life saving life raft type of thing from from this game?
3: That's a, really, that's a really deep question. That's a really deep question. I, I would, uh, you, should have on, you should have a whole academic series. You should have on an anthropologist and a psychologist. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take my best shot at it. Um, John Dewey, and I'm sorry, it's hard to be that guy. John Dewey, he's, he's one of my, my favorite philosophers, talks about how all of experience is, has a double valence to it, right? And it's this idea that everything we look at can just be just what it is, but everything is also always in this stream of connections having to do with the past and the future, right? And one example he has, you could be on a sailboat, step onto the deck and say, oh, pretty sky, it's red. Look at how lovely that is in the morning. And it is a pretty red sky at that moment, but then the sailor comes up next to you and says, ooh, that's a storm coming. That's what that means, right? So I think that stories are... Ways that we as human beings connect present moments to past experiences and future possibilities, right? And I think, and this is what's so, one of the many things that's so complicated about about human beings is while we have instincts, right, most of the important stuff in our life can't be left to instinct. We need to have a story to make sense of it. We need to have a story to give it meaning. Because, blah, something just happened. What does that mean? In a way, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a thing that happened. And if we don't have stories, our lives just become a series of instances, right? And I think stories can help us kind of knit these things together and give us a trajectory about why does that happen? Like the moment I just talked about when Liam brought me that book, it was this wonderful feeling of full circle. Mm. right? And I was like, I know what this, I was here. I remember this. And then it was like, oh my gosh. And this was what it was for me, um, to both have that moment of, I remember me opening that box. Oh my gosh. And then what hit me is like, oh my gosh, I'm my dad now. Right. And it's like, I'm going to be his first dungeon master. This is going to be amazing. Um, I'm going to poison that gold so bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so the serious part, I think it helps give us life meaning. That that's, that's one of the, the important things. My version of me yelling at my dad over the poisoned gold. My son Liam, he's at that wonderful teenage stage where if you give him something that he cares about, his ability to absorb meaning is it's truly breathtaking. So I mean, he plays at tables with literally like everyone at the table is a PhD. And when we get into a rule discussion, we'd we'll be like, Liam, take it away. And like, we know not to contradict him because every time we go to the book, we're like, Holy cow, the, 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 voice, <laughs> the kid's right. Uh, so that's that's my, that's my that's my that's our version. He yells at me. He's like, Dad, you're not playing the rules right. And I'm like, Matter rule, <laughs> Dungeon Master is always right. First uh, <laughs> so, rule of D and D. Right. So I I think I think D I think this storytelling is part of us because our lives are so complicated and we need to have stories to help us make sense of the moments in our lives is is my short answer that makes I'd sense buy and, that. I, and I, oh sorry go ahead chloe
1: no say so i i agree with that i can see
0: one of the things you see in you know other philosophers out there is that they teach through stories they actually do teach through parables and through and through the way we can learn morals Aesop's fables to to jesus on the mount to you know confucius and and, and all these other things and and i love that you are uh, at the forefront of using not just Dungeons and dragons but storytelling and pop culture as you alluded to uh, in your philosophy department to uh, allow students as young as as kindergarten really engage with these ideas and it 's so refreshing because it 's not something you think of oh i 'm going to teach my third grader you know how uh, uh, John Dewey talks about you know so and so right but but the ideas are there and the ideas are sound and they still have an understanding of existence and you're pushing them towards understanding existence a little bit more through these stories. So, yeah, talk a little bit about how that works for, for younger kids, not just teenagers or, or us silly adults.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I'm really, really excited about. So I've, I've had, I'm not an expert on this subfield, the, sub, the field of philosophy for children. I have the great fortune to learn from two wonderful educators, Dr. Uh, Jana Morlone and Dr. Debbie uh, Talukdar, who are both at the Center for Philosophy for Children in Seattle, which is now part of a larger national group called Plato philosophy, learning and teaching organization. These people learn, and and this is what we're tapping into. Um, Socrates said philosophy begins in wonder, right? Mm. And when we're little, we are natural wonderers, right? Uh, I just, I just posted the, the, the silly Venn diagram meme and it it was, it was it backstreet boys, philosophy professors, and children, and in the middle, it says, tell me why. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't, I was not sure where that was going to go. That <laughs> paid off.
3: <laughs> so kids, when they're young, are natural philosophers, right? What's the, what's the, what's the, like, the three-year-old? Why, 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 mm-hmm. why? And it's only when we get older, it's around developmentally, between the ages of nine and 12, that there starts to be a social currency for knowing the answer, and asking the question is seen as not knowing something, that that tendency can shut down. So these people who practice philosophy for children tap into that natural philosopher spirit we start with, right? Because again, the kids are seeing the same, you know, basic facts of the world that we see, but their meaning story is still wide open. And they don't just see stimulus response, stimulus response. They actually say stimulus consideration. And so uh, I I learned from these wonderful people at the the Center for Philosophy for Children how to use kids' stories to engender natural philosophy conversation um, that it's breathtaking how subtle and sophisticated very young children can get when you ask them questions like, what makes something beautiful? Why? What? How can I say a flower and a sunset and mom's face? Three things that they gave me as example of a beautiful thing. Those are such different things. What does it mean to be beautiful? And just giving them that open space with just a little bit of architecture, usually in the form of a kid's storybook. And my gosh, there's so many wonderful kids' books out there. And just exploring these things um, it works really, really, really well. Um, and so philosophy for children is just this way to use storytelling uh, to help these kids reflect about things that, that they're really primed to reflect about anyway. Um, so, so what I am trying to do through programs like the EWU Satori program is teach kids a little bit older. I, I'm using mainly middle school and high school kids to go into and have a, a moderated game of Dungeons and & Dragons, and I always tell them ahead of time at a zero session, this is what we'll be doing. It's going to be like D&D if you've played it before, but I'm going to change it in these ways to use D&D as a, a story that they're helping write to open up these philosophical questions uh, about why is that the right thing to do and, and uh, uh, why, how do we solve this problem together and things like that.
1: Well, can you talk a little bit? You just mentioned the Satori program. So what exactly is that?
3: So the Satori program is a program for middle school and high school age children at Eastern. Um, It had been going on for, I want to say, about 20 years before 2019. I got involved in 2017. I taught classes on Star Wars and philosophy. And then in 2019, I decided to run a game of it was an epic set inside the epic of Gilgamesh for 22 kids at once. Oh. Uh, and so the Satori program, the kids who've gone through it who are now adults, uh, just they just they just love it. So it's a really immersive week-long experience. Um, and they have wonderful activities through the day. Uh, and they also have like a herald where, where students will actually publish a, a, a newspaper each day uh, about Satori. Um, uh, and it was set up by an amazing educator from, from the Spokane area, Mike Cantlin who I'm, I'm so pleased to know, and I'm so pleased taught both of my kids uh, when they were younger. And so uh, I was I was so fortunate to become a part of this amazing program. We obviously, because of the pandemic, had to be off in 2020 and 2021. Fingers and toes crossed, hmm. we're going to be going again in summer of 2022, where I hope to teach Roll for Wisdom again. Uh uh-huh. The uh, philosophy and philosophy through Dungeons and Dragons uh, 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 game, which which I did once it was a lot of fun, um, and I could talk more about it if you want, or, or 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 I'm happy to hear what other questions you have. I want to hear more about it, this epic.
1: I know the epic sounds pretty amazing.
3: So it's so here's the basic idea. I put them into the Epic of Gilgamesh, which. Uh, which is an amazing story. Uh, I don't know if you know this. One version of it is attributed to the oldest named human author in history, which is a woman. Uh, nice. And Heduana was her name. Um, and so it's a story that's really, it's incredibly powerful. Gilgamesh is a jerk when you meet him. He's, he's horrible. He's obsessed in different versions in uh, one of them, he's obsessed with building the tallest wall he can possibly build. Um, so he's constantly—I'm not kidding—screaming, "Build the wall!" Uh, <laughs> and and uh, and enslaving his people. So I'm I'm kind of again zero session. I told the students I'm going to give you some tricky ethical conundrums here, and they wake up. They are kind of Gilgamesh's strike force he says, there's an army out there. I need you to fight them. And I I gave, you know, I did it like an epic where each table had a small task that related to the greater campaign. And there was always an ethical problem. Like Gilgamesh says, I need you to take this, the headquarters. But the headquarters turns out to have actually been a medic's tent. And they get there and there's doctors and wounded people who are enemies uh, and say, what do you do? Uh, and, I, and I prime them – this is really important. I prime them to say there are going to be ethical questions that are coming up. This is one of the ways that I changed kind of classic D&D is whenever they would take a long rest, they would dream. Okay. And in the dream, a fantastical being would come to them and ask them questions. And that's where you would actually – so there was the D&D com- component where something happened and then it's during long rests that we would actually have these built in conversations. Why, was, why would it have been wrong uh, to attack a non combatant? Why, why would it be okay to attack somebody who attacked you? And there's no right or wrong answer. This is just the opportunity for them to have these kind of structured conversations, like the ones that I learned from Dr. Morlone uh, and uh, Dr. Uh, Talukdar about how to teach philosophy to, to children. Um, and the real kicker, for example, is is it's when they win the battle and then they go back and they find out, oh my gosh, I'm working for the bad guy here. Um, and then one of the next conversations is you actually ended up capturing people who were innocent. Are you morally culpable? Did you do something wrong? Does it matter if you don't know? How How does moral culpability work? And I always resolve this Like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is so bad, the gods create, uh, think of him kind of like a Chewbacca figure. Enkidu is his name, and he's this woolly figure from the woods who comes and he fights Gilgamesh. And so the the story ends with Gilgamesh and Enkidu fighting on the wall. Gilgamesh wins, and Enkidu's about to fall to his death. And it's only then that Gilgamesh looks and sees his destroyed city and sees what he's done that he feels compassion and grabs Enkidu and pulls him up. And, and he and he learns um it went the kids again so far exceeded my my thoughts about how deep they would go into this and i'll give you one example there's uh, after the first battle enkidu throws a, a, a party and they're feasting and enkidu's handing out gifts uh, pardon me gilgamesh is handing out gifts this the the players have seen that the people of uruk are not doing well. They're, they're very poor, they're starved. Gilgamesh is doing a terrible job of helping run the city, so there's a lot of poverty. I wanted to just set up a moral quandary between riches and magic items, and I assume most of the students would take the magic items. One student says, oh, that necklace you told me about, what was it made out of? It's soft gold. And what were the gems? Uh, and I'm making it up seven lapis lazulies. So if I broke it apart, each piece would still be valuable. Yes. I'll take the necklace. And so then it's later on I'm asking him this says, why did you take that? He says, well, my character, instead of taking a long rest, I'm going to sneak out and break up the necklace and hand it out to as many people as I can find. Which I didn't even have loaded into the game, but which then, which I was like, why did you do that? What what obligation do we have to suffering? And then kind of pushing them, you didn't cause their suffering, do you? Do we still have an obligation to each other? Oh yeah, I do. Well, as soon as I see their suffering, I have an obligation to do something, to try and mitigate. It. And it was it was just like I had learned at the at the Center for Philosophy for Children. If you give them this opportunity to engage in philosophical reflection, they will almost always go far beyond where you think they will be. Um, Which is, again, underlines this idea that philosophical reasoning is something that we're really meant to do as people. Wow. I know. I I, I feel like there's
0: a question there, uh, which is, why do you murder hobo? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which I think every every d and d player should ask themselves uh on the regular uh you know wh- why is it always about you know getting the magic item that you're you're talking about, or why is it always about you know to 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 the earlier story of you being kids trying to get the gold and level up like why is that important when there's all these other things that are that are occurring around you
3: right um so so existentialist philosophers have this notion of, of, of bad faith, which is anytime you tell yourself or you tell someone else, you have to do this, right? Um, so uh, what's the D&D version of that? I'm just playing my alignment or mm. this is what my character would do. Right. Um, and so you say, well, I'm, I'm chaotic neutral or I'm chaotic evil. This is what I do. Of course, I, I, I take the item and I stab the shopkeeper. That's that's just what I would do. Um, people just like fictional characters are meant to grow. And this is what uh, this is a, a trick that I do as I say, growth is actually built into d That's what the leveling system is for. Right. Um, and so just like for a human being in real life, it's bad faith to say something like, oh, you have to do that. Anytime we look at somebody else and say, that's, you know, that's not for me. You have to do this. Instead, be open to the possibility that we're all meant to grow, right? Uh, And so maybe, uh, you know, Gonk, the chaotic, neutral, barbarian rogue, wants to do that. First of all, that doesn't mean you have to. And second of all, wouldn't it be a cooler story if they grew past that into something else? Um, Yeah absolutely why why do you need to murder hobo uh, that, that.
1: I don't think anyone's going to murder anything after listening to this conversation ever again
3: because
1: <laughs> now we're all just gonna be like but what's your story like, why why are you the way you are
3: yeah, nope. yeah. never again you know, you know, I mean escapism is escapism right if if you're gonna do that but but I really I really think that that's that's if you want to do that you know, you know again uh, meta meta issue if you want to have fun have fun if everyone at the table likes it that's great I personally don't think that's that's a, a that's not getting the most out of what you can get out of this kind of a play and 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 this kind of a game, um, and and so even 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 you know I, I went through the murder hobo phase and grew out of it, um, and I, I think there's so much more richness in in trying to imagine how your character would grow, which also gives you as the real life person an opportunity to think about your own growth in lots of ways. What do you think
0: about the storytelling around um, anti heroes or? Breaking Bad, like like that kind of idea that like, you know, you started from somewhere that was, you know, might have been more morally uh, correct and then and then using the Dungeons and Dragons framework to kind of investigate what happens to turn people um, against that that altruism, against that good and, and and investigating that idea from from, you know, the aspect of wanting to learn more about humanity and these decisions, but doing it through a, a role playing, you know, situation.
3: Right. Um first, again, maybe uh, I encourage you to explore the, the academic series on Dragon Talk. Have a lit person come on to talk about this because they'd be able to speak about it far better than I could, but I'm happy mm. to take a shot. Well, you're in the English chair, too, so yeah. now you have to deal with <laughs> literature. You
1: have to talk about both of them.
3: That just happened to me today and somebody's like, well, you are an English professor. you're like, no, I'm not. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> what? Why do we enjoy things like Breaking Bad? My my. My small version of that is, uh, uh, curb your enthusiasm, which is, which I, I always tell my wife after we watch, it's like, man, I wish I could talk like that. That would be, that would be so awesome if I could do that. That'd be horrible and monstrous. Like I don't actually <laughs> want to do that. So I guess one answer is just a, a titillation element to it. Like, Oh my gosh, that would be so crazy to do that. Um, I think somebody, something like breaking bad where you're, where you're really leaning into the antihero, um, I think it is a good dramatic rehearsal or illustration of how close we are to an edge right um, how, how easy it would be for us to tip into that as well which is which brings up a philosophical term called moral luck right which is and this is the example I always give with my students have you ever driven your car and taken your eyes off the road for a second you know and I've raised my hand because of course of course I have Heaven forfend a creature steps in front of your car at that moment. All you did was the same thing as something that you do in any moment. You took your eyes off the road, right? But you were morally unlucky at that point. Or rather, you entered into a moral terrain that had, in part, something to do with beyond your control. So in Breaking Bad, he didn't wake up wanting to start cooking meth, right? (laughs) He got cancer and was scrambling inelegantly for some way to support his family, and that in no way um, you know, uh, 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 indemnifies him or protects him from all the other horrible decisions that he made. But I think the story does a beautiful job of showing that humans, when they're in a moment of scarcity, when they're in a moment of lack, when they're in a moment of fear, right? We're not our best selves. And sometimes we can be pushed into those moments, right? not because of our own choosing
0: that's really interesting and i think i think a lot of D D players could really embody that really i mean i think that's why i, I mentioned the murder hobo thing because i, I think it, in some ways in some good storytellings that happens around the table like that's that's it you have to do these potentially morally reprehensible things but it may be for you know intentions that are on the whole good right you know of course that also brings up a lot of questions like do we want to be the type of people that make these decisions you know that might be able to have a greater good result but you know what happens to those people who do that uh, and, and where do they where do their happiness lie um, you know and that gets into you know storytelling around you know how far are we willing to go you know is the, do the ends justify the means and all those types of stories and I think you know there's a lot that uh, D&D players and dungeon masters can really explore uh, with those without it just being you know kill monsters, take loot.
1: Yeah. I think about how many people's backstories do you have like they were uh, like a bounty hunter or, you know, like they, but then the, that's always wrapped up in the I, I had to, I had no other choice. I have no, I think Walter White is a very good character to dissect in philosophy because at some point, like you said, like he, the reason why he started Cooking meth was to help his family. It was out of desperation and we all felt terrible. <laughs> sure, there was other alternatives he could have done, but he took this opportunity. But at what point do we stop rooting for him? Because he consistently makes like worse and worse and worse choices. And I'm trying to think, did I always root for him? Was there a point when we turned on him? And is that the goal for that storytelling? Are we Are we meant to turn on him or is it meant to just continuously push boundaries to see like, well, how much how much will you take from your anti-hero? <laughs> how much can we do here? And I don't remember. Do you remember? Did he end up... Did we not want him to succeed at the end?
0: No, we definitely did not.
1: <laughs> I don't remember.
0: You got to watch the whole thing all the way through again, Charlie, because there is so many ups and downs.
1: There really were. And yeah. I, re- I absolutely remember the ending, and I can't remember if it was... I feel like I'm also sort of a person that almost always not roots for the, the bad guy in quotes, but has some empathy for that person. I I can, you know, when you can clearly tell who the antihero is in a story and I will almost always gravitate towards this person's a little bit more interesting and I'd like to know more.
3: That's, that's right. I think, I mean, there's so many wonderful questions in this. I, I think for the, for the Walter White, it was when he gets the diagnosis that he's stabilized that he's in remission to me that to me that was like one of those bright lines like okay then go back to being a freaking chemistry teacher right and harming people right um but this is this is a wonderful illustration of the fact of uh, something aristotle says we're, we're creatures of habit right we very rarely go through our lives saying what should i do now we instead develop these habits, and we're often on autopilot in really scary ways. He develops these really rewarding habits, rewarding in a messed-up way, of, of becoming really rich by cooking meth, and that part of who he is just takes over. Uh, the other wonderful element, and I, and I know from loving and listening to your podcast about both of you all having the theater, theater background, how can you ever root against a Brian Cranston character uh, is the other thing. Uh, <laughs> He's just so compelling, uh, and and you just and you you just you just love anything that he's doing with his face, and you're like, oh god, that's horrible, but sure, I mean, he he should win. Uh, and it's who, who else is in that series? Uh, is it Giancarlo Esposito? Uh, yes. And he's also you know a, a, a bad bad guy who I will always root for. Even even in the Mandalorian, when he when he steps out of that out of that Tie Fighter, he's like, I know you're a bad person, but man, I can't. I can't do anything but love this guy.
0: And I think there's an element of that in Dungeons and Dragons too, right? Where, where your, your player characters, you know, that's why I think the warlock and the tiefling are very popular uh, types of archetypes to play with because they've, they've been forced to make this potentially morally wrong decision to, to uh, uh, have a pact with a, with a devilish entity or someone who is the embodiment of evil in order to get small, uh, ga- you know, relatively small gains in your, in your personal life and your powers, Right. And then I think Dungeons & Dragons players really just like having that built-in storytelling. It's actually almost even independent of the Dungeon Master in some ways because it's built into the player character's kind of, you know, character creation makeup, right? And then, you know, I've seen so many great storytellers use that to uh, get at the heart of what we're talking about here. Like, like, when is it okay to use these, you know, potentially lethal and... Uh, uh, irreversible, well, I guess with Dungeons Dungeon & Dragons you can always resurrect people, but you know, irreversible things that you can do, is that okay in, in this context uh, going forward? And I think that's really really interesting stuff.
3: Yeah, the, especially uh, tieflings uh, or, or warlocks. I think it's more, yeah, warlocks, if you start as a packed, pacted character, uh, right? And, and, it, and it sets itself up really easily to be like, yes, yes, I talk to uh, Asmodeus on a regular basis, but I'm trying to be better and 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 what does that mean? I think yeah that that growth is built into it, but then you that again you also have the the anti heroes you also have the somebody who starts you know the wonderful image of the I am going to start squeaky clean, and I want to save the people of this village. And, and then you hear about the Eye of Vecna somewhere and you're like, but if I, but if I got that eye, I bet I could help a lot of people. Um, and then uh, the quest for power because, becomes its own reason for being. And, uh, and next thing you know, you're the chaotic evil wizard that everybody's trying to stop.
0: Um, I love yeah. that. And then set up, set up the next campaign you're going to play as trying to take mm-hmm. down the right. previously successful player character. <laughs> right, that's right. Do
1: you think that character that char- like warlocks and tieflings are so appealing because humans really do just want to be bad, but we can't, we can't <laughs> because this is not a lawless society. But DD <laughs> gives us that opportunity to be just a little bit bad without, like, you know, real repercussions.
3: Yeah. And I, and I mean, that's the, I, I think that's the, that's the, that's the, the culture side, the art side, you know, whenever you were uh, as theater geeks, uh, you, you know, you always wanted to be the bad guy, right? That was just it was so, more fun, yes. It's so fun to get to get to get to say and do horrible things in a sandbox, in a safe yeah. realm that is that is enticing and engaging, but then you wipe off your makeup and you go back. Uh yeah, I think it's I think it's I I, I think that's the fun of being a dungeon master of like, waha, you stepped in my trap. Uh, <laughs> roll. uh, uh it's so fun to get to, to get to torture your friends and have them to get really mad at you for five minutes. And then as, as they're packing up, be like, that was awesome. Thank you so much. That was great. Let's do it again. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's a wonderful dramatic rehearsal. Uh, you know, obviously much better to play at being the bad guy than actually be the bad guy. Absolutely.
0: Well, that's a re- I, I actually hadn't thought about that, but it is really a, a way to exercise some of these things yeah. without any of those repercussions. I and mean, it's, yeah, there's something yeah. to that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely.
1: Do, yep. do you notice, you know, when you're playing D&D, certain like the types of characters people are drawn to and in, in, in your philosophical mind, are you like, oh, you are a control freak. And that's why you want to play this chaotic <laughs> character, because you just need to let go once in a while. Or do you notice a correlation between like personality types and the characters that they gravitate towards?
3: That's a, that's a great question. The people the people that I play with a lot, I start to see what they're going into. Um, I mean, one of the most common tropes is you know power gaming. They're people who just think in terms of the rules and they want to do things inside the world, inside the mechanics, color inside the lines in a way that's really really powerful. Um, other 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 older gamers my age often tend towards the a combination of power gaming but with a silly crazy name. Um, like a friend of mine who only has named characters based on Looney Tune characters, but they all can just absolutely throw down. Um, That's a great
1: idea. I like that actually. <laughs> it,
3: is. it was just DMing Foghorn Leghorn, the oh. big, the <laughs> the say, biggest and you ever did saw, uh. um, who is a, a an Aroka barbarian with the mobile feet, who who uh, just trounced all my monsters. Um, but then Shelley, there are absolutely people who are working through things, or who really are trying out these characters um, as as a version of themselves, or even just a really interesting way to go through an imagined life. Um, I I often see these with, and and it, you know what? It, it, it's a lot of times it's either people who are looking for power or the support characters. Um, I see a lot of people working through things when they say, you know, I want to be the bard or the cleric because I, I want to be there to help people. And, and those people, I often do see a correlation with people who in real life are very much the I want to be there for them sort of people. Um, but I'm sure, sure, just like just like the two of you, there's a wide range of of the personalities of the human beings, the, the players, and and the characters that they that that they play. I, I do tend towards my, my son is telling me you need to you know you need to try and loosen up and not always try to save everybody and help everybody. Um, but but that does I I do like paladins, clerics, and bards uh, because I really do like the idea of helping people in real life. But uh, you know whatever you enjoy, right.
0: Shelly doesn't play any of those characters, so what does that say about you, (laughs) Shelly?
1: I know. I'm a little scared to dig too deep into that. (laughs) I'm not good in emergencies. I'm just not. I don't like stressful emergency situations.
0: In D&D or in real life.
1: No, definitely not. But I do notice that I tend to play characters that aren't um, the negotiators, that aren't the ones that are, you know, go try to schmooze the guard and get us in i don't like any of that and i do like to be a little bit chaotic and i think it's because i feel like i have i am a i am a bit of a control freak in real life and i do have a lot of responsibilities and being a a mom and full-time job and all this household stuff and i when i play i i don't i just i don't want anyone to come to me for anything do not don't ask I think that's also why I don't want to be a healer. Don't ask me for any help. <laughs> I'm checking out.
3: <laughs> that's great. You you talk to the guard. You talk to the guard. Yes.
1: You someone else handle this guard situation. I'm just going to be in the back here, just you know, juggling fireballs. Let me know when you need me. <laughs> yeah.
3: That is, that is awesome. I think I think more. I think there should be more parent D and D support groups. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I think philosophy for children is great, but by all means, do philosophy without children. Uh, do <laughs> them both. Do it both ways. Um, yeah, I like that a lot.
1: Let's talk about the kids a little bit more. Sure, because you know I love that. Um, so, in the Satori program, are the the younger kids? Are they all, they're also playing D anD D?
3: So it's I believe the age is twelve to eighteen. Okay, which is developmentally a really wide range. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the age of the players at my table. I believe it's it's just satoris just for middle school and high school. So I believe it starts at twelve. It might be a. Like, oh okay. Um, when I've done the younger uh, work with younger kids, it's when I um, visit area schools. Uh, it's when I've done after school programs or with just my son's friends uh, when they were younger. Is when I DM'd a bunch of younger kids. Who were nine and ten, um, and and I would de- I would work in a little philosophy stuff just because I am who I am, <laughs> but it was it was that was much more about introducing them to D and D and and giving them a cool, fun, age appropriate experience. What, what did you?
1: Oh, sorry. Go on, Greg. You go ahead. I don't remember now.
3: <laughs> I was going to switch
0: <laughs> to talking about. Uh, the Get Lit festival and and how much you know we want to you want to try to integrate D&D into that.
3: Yeah, so uh, this is this is something that again uh, I, I like I said I literally just got elected and I I want to be on the record. I asked permission. I asked uh, permission of the the people in the creative writing program here. We have all of the faculty at Eastern are amazing and hardworking. Like the administrators, like the staff, the creative writing people here are truly exceptional. And they've they've been running this amazing literature festival called Get Lit um, for for over twenty years. Um, and and it, we were just talking about D and D as philosophy or as a mode for philosophy. D and is also amazing literature. It's also a ground for amazing design and, and visual art. And so I wanted to approach them and they have a very broad notion of literature they've had pop culture folks they've had graphic novelists and I said what would you think of having a session that highlighted RPGs like D&D as a form of of, of, of literature as or, or fiction, as, as a form of living fiction. And they thought it was a really cool idea. So we are going to, pandemic allowing, fingers crossed, all that good stuff, um, in the, the weekend of April 21 through 24 in April. Uh, so April 21 through 24 of t- uh, 2022. On the Sunday, we're hoping to have an actual play where the players um are writers so i'm sure you're all familiar with the the phenomenon of having actors play dnd live and that's super fun and super great um i wanted to see if we could do it with poets and and writers and so we're we are in the process of getting people to sign up for this we are so 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 excited that recently the amazing dungeon master beth the bard uh has agreed to be our dm that's we're awesome. talking other uh, RPG writers who might be there as players. We're also going to try and have uh, kind of a QA session probably on Saturday where some RPG writers could come in and talk about what it, what it means to write an RPG and how do you write for a game like Dungeons and Dragons and how does that relate to literature and fiction? Um, so, so that is, that, that is, that's, that was literally the first thing I did as chair was say, we need to have Dungeons and Dragons at a major literary festival. So it's either gonna go great, uh, or I'm in trouble. So I'm sure. It'll go- <laughs> <laughs> um, so, because I know Beth the Bard is amazing, uh, and, and we're going to get some great people. So, uh, I'm really, I'm really thankful that people gave me the chance to do this, and, and it's going to be amazing. I think that's so. super cool. Yeah. Yes. And
0: I love the. I mean, you have this idea here listed of you know we've seen a, a growth of video game. Uh, learning happening in the last few decades, where there's been you know programs and things set up to how to how to join the video game industry and and, and learn how to you know do all of those things because it's multidisciplinary and all that stuff. And I love this idea that you're putting forth here of wanting to do that similar type of thing for a real course at a real university a to major. make make at a major major university to make you know uh, tabletop role playing game materials. Uh, what a cool idea!
3: Yeah, and and that's that's something that's in the works. Um, higher education has been needing to move away from just these are the courses come take them because we say you need to take them. Um, there's a there's a much greater emphasis on connecting student learning to everything from real world applications, but also just getting people out of the classroom, right? And and having a, a, a more organic connection to things that we do outside of the university, and so it's. Again, if you were in engineering, it would be the most normal thing in the world to say we want to develop our engineering program so that there's a straight line from the engineering degree to, say, working for Boeing. Um, Why not do something like that for, you know, amazing uh, uh, things like Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering where we have students taking classes so that they could step out and say, I have skills in design. I have skills in writing. I have a background in theater and improv. I have a background in mythology. I can step right into helping be a designer, a writer, uh, an actual player uh, because because of the amazing work that you and your colleagues are doing uh, this is this is becoming a uh, uh, you know uh, 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 do we call this the second golden Age an incredible <laughs> explosion in RPGs and and D&D's amazing growth. And so um, my deans come to me and they say, we want students to have real world applications for their learning. And I'll say, if you don't believe me, go look. There is a real world application for learning how to be part of the RPG community, how to work for a place like Wizards of the Coast or Dungeons and Dragons. And so we're going to try and uh, develop an interdisciplinary interdisciplinary major that's kind of intentional about putting these sorts of classes that we think would be beneficial for somebody who wanted to go into this and make it a career.
1: Wow. Incredible.
3: Right? I mean, because you think about the people
0: we work with, Shelly, right? They have background. None of them had the ability to have this major in college. Yeah. Uh, but they have, there's people who are you know, philosophy majors. There are people who are religion anthropology majors, majors. Anthropology majors. Anthropology. There's people who are theater, who are English. Uh, they all came from these different places of learning uh, yeah. and different career paths to end up where they are now. And I think that's very fascinating to have this type of, of thing it's something that I've you know we even mentioned in our book uh, Shelley about how D D is, is this interdisciplinary thing it, has, it creates art it's writing it's it's map making it's you know mathematical uh, probability uh, mm-hmm. um, you know solutions it's all of these things combined it really does feel like something that's not just one discipline and so having that grounded in some some you know real university learning uh, just makes sense for people who want to enter this field.
3: That's that's exactly the hope. That's exactly the hope. And and my administrators are really open to new things. Um, everyone in higher education is, is is obviously a really critical time, and uh, and it's adapt and grow or go by the wayside. And I really think that this is this is a, a very fruitful way that we could grow. Um, and also, this is the other thing. I mean, education needs for it to take root. It needs to actually matter, right? Um, and this is this is one of the ideas that Dewey said that you need. You can't just teach something at somebody. It has to have some indigenous, authentic hook to, to their experience, right? Um, and so many students are coming into college deeply caring about uh, stories and, and ideas that they got through role-playing. So I think it's, 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 it's connected on both ends. It's something that, they, that taps into a pre-existing interest, and it's something that can lead into uh, further growth. So I I think it would be a great bridge major to to go from where they are to where they want to be. I just want Mm -hmm. my kid to say, "Oh,
0: I'm going to this university." And uh, what's your major? Dungeons and Dragons.
3: (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's gonna happen.
3: That's right. Why not? Why not? Why not?
0: Yeah. Will they will be ahead at parties for sure uh, around the college campus?
1: Always an invite for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's and this is also why. D&D is such a great learning tool for those younger kids because it is it's play but it's inherent that you're you are going to have to do some math and you are going to have to do some reading and chances are you're going to want to do some writing as well while you're there and the cultural study. like everything else piles onto it it's just an innate learning tool that they don't even know they're doing they don't even know they're learning it
3: that's right that's right and, and you know in in the field they call it game based learning mm-hmm. and you know just just my tiny bit of research into this oh my gosh the people working in elementary english art math who have come up with the most brilliant ways of using dnd to teach these skills it's it's awe-inspiring um but you're right it can touch on so many different you know parts of our existence parts of our lives uh, i remember liam uh, when he first got into it, he would he would have, you know, the basic – we'd print out a bunch of those player sheets and he would say, Dad, I need new player sheets. And, um, you know, on the second page of the standard sheet, they have the little box for the drawing yeah. of what your character looks like and then the narrative. And it was so sweet. That was really his first experience writing in full sentences. Mm. Wow. Um, and we didn't need to prompt him at all. He would come to me, or he would come to Becca, my my wife, and say, "How do I say this?" And it was, and it was that the again the mo the moment Dewey wants it comes from actual organic interest, and and is connected to something that makes sense, right? And so, uh, yeah, he he literally learned to write by describing his. His characters. Uh, one of his first characters. Gosh, what was it? It was a gnome who was uh, who believed himself to be the king of the leprechauns, uh, and, uh, and, and he was an illusionist. Uh, and so he had this really elaborate story for why he wasn't actually a leprechaun, but he he legitimately thought he was the king of the leprechauns. Wow! Uh, and so Liam walking around with an Irish accent. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, the the king of the leprechauns.
0: They're after story. me, Lucky Charms.
3: Beautiful. That's right. That's
0: right. That's right. Adorable. That's so yeah. great. And I love that. Right. That is that's where the seed starts. Right. Of Like I want to communicate something. I can't I don't know. I don't have the tools yet. So let me get those tools. And to have that desire come from within versus, you know, uh, a teacher wrapping you on the knuckles. It's so much so much better.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, I think one of the next things I need to learn is is the the incredibly deep ocean of game design, uh, mm. and how many uh, you know majors there are in this, and how how many people work in this, um, because that's the that's the the looking behind the scenes, right, of the architecture that's there, that's really kind of creating something out of nothing, um, and it's so. The people who develop these games are so brilliant. It's so breathtaking uh, the amount of work that goes into this, uh, and and that that really fascinates me. Uh, and so, you know, having design be part of this too would be would be would be excellent. How do I? I could literally invent anything. I could make anything. What, what is it? What is it that we want to make here? And what do we want to emphasize here? And is this a short game, a quick game, uh, anything like that? Yeah. Well. That's fascinating, as is this entire
0: conversation uh, with you, Terry. Like, this has just been so wonderful. I loved getting into the weeds on philosophy and thinking about morals and what that all means. And I think it's at the heart of so many really great stories, uh, and especially D&D campaigns. And uh, it's, it was, you know, I hadn't really thought about a lot of these things in a long time. So it was really nice to kind of exercise those muscles.
3: Well, thank you so much. I, I really cannot believe you had me on. I'm <laughs> thankful to, to both of you, uh, Shelly and Greg. I'm beyond honored. Uh, the work y'all do is, is really phenomenal. The care that you show for your guests, the thoughtfulness you put into these shows, it's second to none. Um, this is truly a wonderful but strange experience hearing your voices. <laughs> I'm not mowing my lawn or doing the dishes because <laughs> it's very strong habitual thing of like I mean, this is the happy I can't count the number of times that I've just stood on my lawnmower just just because I needed to hear you guys finish talking for a little bit before I went in and did the next thing. Oh, oh, that's adorable. That's awesome. I love that. That's
1: amazing.
3: Thankful beyond words to be here. Anything I can do to help you in your great work. Please call on me. And um, yeah, this was a great experience. Thank you so much. Well, no same problem. to
1: you, because you're also doing a lot of wonderful work and we're happy to, to support you and however we can.
0: Yeah, and for, I would love for people to, if they can, if they're in the Spokane area or, or, or can can safely make it to the Get Lit uh, Festival uh, to check that out. Um, and is there is there any where you want to send people to learn more about that or your work or Eastern Washington
3: University in general? Sure, so for Get Lit, you can just find it, all of this stuff you can just find at the EWU website. So it's Get Lit, G-E-T-L-I-T exclamation point. Uh, is is how they spell it. So you can find that at the Eastern Washington University website. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at PhilosophyDM. Um, and you can also just find me at the Eastern website, Terry McMullen or Terrence McMullen uh, in the Department of English and Philosophy.
0: Excellent. I can't wait. Philosophy dm is, is just a great handle. I know, it really uh-huh. is. I can't believe that wasn't taken, but... I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we should have led with that. <laughs> uh, so everybody, check uh, out everything uh, I want to say Dr. Terry is doing uh, and hopefully inject some of these fun philosophical ideas in in your storytelling because I think uh, we'd be, we're would be we better for it. So thank you again. Yay. Thank Yay. you. Thank you so much. Oh, I am so excited about that conversation and I'm sharing it with y'all because... It is important and really interesting.
1: Oh, I think there's a lot more to dig into with Dr. Terry for
0: sure. For sure. Uh, and for everybody at your D&D <sighs> table, start digging into thinking about what it all means to uh, hobo murder all around town.
1: Or not, and just go and then, do what you need to do and just escape and have fun.
0: That's true. There's, there's the entire spectrum.
1: What do you think dinner parties are like at Dr. Terry's house? Do you think they always end with deep philosophical discussions? Or is he just... Let's talk about what you watched on Netflix.
0: Do you really want to add sriracha to that? (laughs) What does that say about you and uh, your moral quandaries? And
1: my cooking.
0: And my cooking, right? Is it an evil act for you to insult my cooking in such a way? (laughs) Uh, Fascinating uh, in any case. and uh, I want to find out what's snacks. what snacks, what do philosophy uh, PhDs do for snacks? Corn nuts. <laughs> exactly. Corn nuts. Just, yeah. Yeah. They taste delicious. That's why. Yes. Wonderful. Well, everything about Dungeons & Dragons you can find out on DungeonsAndDragons.com. You can follow uh, the Twitter at Wizards underscore DND or on the Instagrams. But more importantly, honestly, how do you follow us That's me. I'm at Greg Tito on Twitter. Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. What about you, Shelly?
1: I am at Shelly Moo on Twitter and Instagram. What was I going to say? I I am
0: shh. Shat is what you said. (laughs) I am shh.
1: That's what I've I've come to conclude after an hour of thinking and talking about philosophy. I am (laughs) shh.
0: My pants. All right. And <laughs> speaking of which, uh, Junkie Tuch is about to throw down with some doppelgangers down under below the sea ward, uh, uh, the, the ward of the <laughs> city of Waterdeep. I forget which one you're in. I think it's actually the south ward. Anyway what you're trying to to convince this guard that his partner is a doppelganger and uh when confronted with that the guard did not believe you and decided to arrest you and you said i'm going to take you out uh and so we are a rolling initiative they have just acted and click put a set of manacles around your paws. You're currently standing on like the bottom rung of the ladder. uh, And so you, you know, (laughs) pull down. uh, And so you're in front of the guard right now and it is your action. What are you going to do? So
1: I am, my, my paws are in front of me, right? Not behind me. Correct. Okay. So I'm going to, I am going to go limp. Like, oh, but just rely on my feline agility to kind of keep me from getting Super injured, but I, I just go limp. So you go prone, yeah. Um, and then I want—is the guard doing anything? Look to my prone kitty-like body.
0: Uh, no, he sees you go prone, and he's like, "Oh, he unexpected." Actually, you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll see whether or not he was unexpected in doing that. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So he would, did not act fast enough, and you're kind of pile onto the ground uh, below. Do you say anything as you go limp? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, and Samson actually steps up and says, I feel like I should step in here before we resort to more violence. Uh, the open lord did, in fact, uh, order us to uh, apprehend these doppelgangers and gifted this individual who is lying on the ground moaning uh, and uh, hissing like a cat um, a magic item which allows the- them to detect... Shut uh, the, uh, the existence yep. of these creatures seeing through their illusions. Zip it. Zip, zip. And you're saying zip it. <laughs> you're still just on the ground. <laughs> uh, and we'll see... Oh, poor Samson rolled really bad on his persuasion.
3: Why is this making me cry? <laughs> so
0: the tiefling guard is very confused, uh, doesn't know what to do, and he says... Uh, regardless the magistrate will have to uh, settle this all out I'm I'm taking you all in Uh, and that's when (laughs) the guard doppelganger uh, that you know uh, the the human says not gonna happen partner and he draws a dagger and stabs his guard friend who goes limp just next to you
1: oh (laughs) Jesus
0: We'll see what happens next time. Oh, I'm super sorry, Mr. Guard. Is that your fault you didn't do it, or is it?
1: Now I have a moral <laughs> dilemma. I feel like it is my fault. I could have ended this a long time ago.
0: We'll see what happens next.
1: Uh okay.
0: okay.